Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. This is Nancy May at Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And my guest here today is Brian Searcy. Brian is a retired colonel with the U.S. Air Force, a combat commander and veteran. And over the course of his career, he has been in some very, well, you would imagine, dangerous situations. Some have been very obvious and others have been like, I guess, not, not, not so in your face, right, Brian? That's correct. Yep. And you would probably ask me now, like, what does a combat veteran have to do with elder care and the success of elder care? Well, actually quite a lot because Brian's expertise is in situational awareness. And as caregivers, one of the things that we have to do is just to hone our sensitivity or our intuition. Maybe it's a lot more than intuition. Brian will tell us more about that in really understanding whether those that we care for, whether it be a parent, uh, a spouse, a partner, a loved one, it could even be a child, is in danger. And danger is not always so obvious. So Brian, let's jump into this really quickly. And why don't you explain to to me and, and our audience a little bit more about what situational awareness really is? Absolutely. And thanks, Nancy, for having me on today. As you mentioned, 23-year career in the Air Force, did a number of things after I retired in 2010, but about four years ago, I took all of my experience from the military and being in danger and those types of things, having to to stay calm under pressure, as well as other training that I've received and and develops a situation awareness program that's designed to keep people safe, but also improve how you identify changes in people's mental health. And it also helps as being a parent or a leader or a grandparent. So so let me, uh, so, let me just stop you right yeah. there a second. So you explained what you do with it, but you didn't explain what it is. Yeah. And I was getting right into that. Okay, so sorry. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Um, situation awareness is a God-given gift that we all have. It's that hair on the back of that neck feeling. It's that gut feeling that we get. The sad real statistic today, however, is that only one in seven people actually have situation awareness. They don't even know that they have it. They might get that feeling sometimes, but they don't know what to do with it. So the first thing that we do with our situational awareness programs is teach people what is situation awareness. It's that gut feeling. It's using the 10 critical skills that we teach to develop habits, behaviors, and processes so that you can be perceptive and you can feel and see those things that are potentially dangerous, whether it's your kids' changes in behavior because they're being attacked by a predator on their cell phone, or if there's somebody that comes into a building that shouldn't be there. So it's it's the intuition, it's that gut feeling. We've all been in a situation where we have a sense, but we don't trust it, right? I mean, I'm going through that right now in something that we're dealing with here. And I kind of get that uneasy feeling, but should I call out to this person for help? Do I just trust my gut and go for it? Or it's like you feel like you're not quite queasy, but there's something there that just doesn't feel like you're standing on firm ground. Absolutely. And, and, and actually, thanks for leading in with that, because that's one of the key things that we have in all of our programs that's repeated over and over and over again, 
is when you get that gut feeling, once you finally realize what that is, you absolutely need to trust it. You need to take action on it. Now, that action could be to make sure that what you're feeling is real or isn't real. It may be, though, that you can't identify what that actual threat is. So you maybe have to remove yourself from being a threat. Quick example, quick story. A week ago, I was talking to a woman. She drives to the same park every day to go running, drove up, parked her car, had this gut feeling, you should not park here today. She ignored it, got out of her car, walked about 10 feet. She got that same feeling, you should not park here today. Ignored it, went on a run. When she came back, her back window in her car was broken and everything in her car had been stolen. Oh my so goodness. Her, she learned the hard way that the gut feelings that you get are real and that you absolutely have to trust them. Just out of curiosity, you know, gut feeling is one thing, but the confidence to really trust that gut is a whole nother story. And sometimes I think, you know, we, we're concerned that we get overly paranoid and you fall into that negative hole. So everything's a danger and a threat, which is just the opposite extreme too, right? Right. And that's why situational awareness training that's traditional or other trainings that are out there that are the traditional type training that you sit down and you watch a video or you hear somebody speak for an hour, they don't work because you don't establish the habits, the behaviors, a mindset, and then a process that you use so that you set yourself up for success so that you can prevent bad things from happening or remove yourself from potentially being a victim. So when you have that prepared mindset, when you have learned how to have an escalated level of response, when you don't get panicked and react on emotion because you have this process that you use, that's how you're not paranoid. You're just prepared. And you have the ability to use critical thinking, which is one of the 10 critical skills that we teach, to analyze the situation. Another great story from four weeks ago, I was teaching a program uh, to, to a school and two churches in Ohio. Uh, the, my host took me out to dinner. We're sitting there and the fire alarms start going off. So the alarm's going off and the lights are blinking and a bunch of people started panicking because I have this process and this mindset, I sat there and I said, okay, none of the staff is running. There's no smoke. I was about to say, no if fire. you're in New York, nobody does anything. Yeah. Well, but I mean, <laughs> I went through there. that process, right? Um, it's the same thing that we teach teachers on active shooter. If there's a fire drill, don't just run out of, the, out of your classroom because that's what you're taught to do in the drill. Because we're concerned that somebody pulled that fire alarm lever, uh, lever to get people out in the hallway. There hasn't been a, a successful or a bad fire in a school since 1954. So check what's out in the hallway first. Make sure that the fire alarm is legit, then get your people out of the school. But that's all habits, behaviors, and mindsets. And unfortunately, people don't have those. Yeah, I wouldn't even think about from my own experience that somebody might have some sort of ulterior motive to pull an alarm to get everybody out in, in a hallway so that they could start shooting or doing something horrible to a larger group of people. Well, let's, we all know what happened with the Las Vegas shooting. You're familiar with that, right? Right. And that was, was, but that was from the window, wasn't it? But that it was, was from a, a window, but, but everybody ran away. What if people would have ran, run the other way and gotten out of the fatal funnel? The fatal funnel is that, is that vision that he has. So they actually kept running so that they remained targets with the weapons he had. Oh my goodness. If they would have run the other way and got so close to the building that he couldn't look down on them. Nobody thought about that because nobody had prepared for anything like that to happen. I mean, who thought something like that was going to happen? Well, I prepare for those types of things. I don't know which direction I would have run. I don't know if I would have looked for cover behind a car. But if you haven't thought through all of those things, 
the only thing you're going to do is run and you may run in the wrong direction. That's why it's so important to establish these habits and behaviors. So let's bring this into the care process. Right. Because Las Vegas, we may be going to Las Vegas with our parents at some point when things get a little safer. Chances are we're not going to be with them in a school situation. We'll likely maybe with them in a church or synagogue uh, or some other sort of temple environment. But more than likely, our first particular situation that we'll be in with somebody who needs our help is in their home. Mm -hmm. And beyond having the home be a safe environment, we're having people come in and out. You're having other caregivers coming in and out. You could have home health uh, agency doing PT or OT or other things. And I believe that in general, as we get older, even as our parents get older, they consider their home to be the safe haven and that nothing's going to happen there. So, you know, what are some of the things you can do? And actually, I'll give you prime examples. My mom early on started to have some dementia issues and she went through some paranoid situation. I wasn't there. I was 1,200 miles away and decided that they needed money. So brought in a fellow to look at their antiques and she was, you know, selling them off at like five and $10 a pop just because she thought that would save them. Well, you know, $5 and $10 in this day and age is not going to do it, let alone trusting somebody to come into your home. And my dad wasn't aware of, of this, you know, right. it's okay. I get it. I mean, what can you do to stop that kind of situation in your home to begin with? Because that's usually the beginning of things. Yeah. So that's a tough one, especially if you're not there and you're not right. able to add that guidance and they have Alzheimer's or dementia, or those types of things. We, we went through that with my dad. My parents started living with us about eight or nine years ago. My mom, right. my mom still lives with us. My dad passed away. And there were many episodes where he had bad interactions with the home care person that came in. Right. One of the things I worked with my mom on is look for those key things that his behavior is starting to go down that road so that you can work to steer him in another direction. Also talk to the caregiver, but it's being aware of those things. And that's with this, the habit and behaviors of situational awareness and the process that we have, you think about all of these things that could potentially happen. So that's what empowers you to actually then do something about it. Because a home is considered a safe place, right? Anybody well, who comes it, in, it's a natural instinct. It is a natural instinct, but I will tell you today that if you look across the news and you, you actually go into reports like I look at, there are caregivers that aren't necessarily the safest people. Sure. And there are other people that are, are predators that are trying to get in, especially to those that are elderly, uh, that maybe can't defend themselves. They see a, a pattern where somebody is going in and out, in and out of the house every, every day or every yep. other day. So that's a path for them potentially into the home, right? Uh -huh. So I'm not trying to scare people. But to be aware of these types of things and then have a, a plan of action of what you would do if it happens is how you set yourself up to be prepared in case something happens. I'm going to stop you there a second. So most people or a large percentage of people are not actually living with their parents at this point in time. Right. But at least if I have a plan to say, okay, we've discovered that something's happened, what can we do to either mitigate it or just stop it happening again so that we can either recoup the loss, which in that particular situation with, with my mom, it was next to, I didn't know who this was. Right. And my dad panicked because mom trusted him, you know, dad trusted mom with the money because that was her job in their relationship. And he called one day and said, mom says we're broke. Are we I'm like, 
calm down, dad, everything's okay. <laughs> but at least he had the wherewithal or the awareness as you use it to call me and make sure that they were safe. I probably didn't alleviate all his fears, but I went over the numbers and I said, everything's okay. You don't need to worry about it. Mom's paying some of the bills, but I'm paying the others. So till we can get there, it's time to come down and, and move forward. So that's important. So in the home is one thing. Let's say, is there something that we can do to be more astute in identifying or looking for things like that if we're bringing in an aid or an agency into our home? Right. Obviously doing due diligence before you bring them in. And, and I know that that's something that you already share with everybody that's yep. part of your group. You know, So that's a big thing. Paying attention to the individual that comes into the house, because that is one of the things that I see with healthcare workers, with emergency responders, with grandparents, parents with their kids, with us kids who are taking care of our parents, right. is that sometimes we get so wrapped up and focused on them that we lose that exterior look and that, that awareness of what's going on around other than that. That's interesting. Right? So the perspective of not trusting the caregiver. So you don't want to be like not trusting because you still need to bring them in to do the work. It's just being a little bit more, the environment is not just one person, but it could be three or four people. So Absolutely. And okay. you're going to look at how they're treating your parent, yep. but you need to watch their other behavior as well. How do they behave if they're not, if, you know, if they're there for three or four hours and they're just sitting with your mom or dad, how are they behaving? What is their personality? I've got stories there. I bet you do. <laughs> what is their personality like? Right. But I, I have seen it personally with my parents, and I'm sure others that are listening have seen this as well, but I see it across the spectrum, not just with us sure. taking care of our parents, where get, people get focused on just one thing and they don't pay attention to the other easy things for them to see that are right in front of them because they haven't established the ability to do that. So can you give me an example of some of those easy things to see? Well, like I said, and sometimes people see it, but they don't know what to do with it, right? So okay. you said you have stories after stories of people that are sitting there. Everybody has a stress level. So what we see with parents today is when they're parenting their kids, they let their kids get away with thing after thing until it goes above that stress level. Until they blow. And then that's when they blow. Yeah. When we are so focused on our on the things that are important to us or directly on our parents, if that's what we're worried about at that time, we may see behavior after behavior after behavior, and it really doesn't register or, or we don't act on it because we haven't come up with that process. Well, what do I do with that? And when those bad behaviors get there, that's when it eventually gets to a point where damage might've been done or it gets harder to deal with it. So going back to me as a parent or me dealing with my 10-month-old German short-haired puppy, if I wait and let him chew on my shoe and then I go take the shoe away and I punish him for it, is all I've told him that he, he did something wrong. I'm not changing his behavior. I'm not empowering him not to chew on the shoe. If I go up and I pull the shoe away right away and I start playing a ball with him, well, now he's going to play with the ball and realize that's much more fun than chewing on daddy's shoe. But you have yeah. to know to be able to see those things and then take action on it. And that's what, because situational awareness is not just knowing what the definition is. It's, it's action, the action. It's, the, it's knowing what situational awareness is. It's using your 10 critical skills to analyze what's going on and then do something about it, right? So if a caregiver is doing something that you don't want to be done to your, to your parent, you politely say, you know, maybe that this they like this better. You know, I'm with them all the time. So maybe this is better. Provide an alternative. Provide an alternative. To... But then it also gives you an opportunity. If that caregiver says, no, I don't, I don't agree with you or they do that behavior again. Well, now you're in, in your mind, you're going, 
well, this person doesn't really care what I say. That's a jerk. Well, this person doesn't care what I say about the care of my parents. So maybe that's not the right person to be here for my parent, right? So you can call the, the agency. Maybe they send somebody else. Maybe you give them two or three chances. But if you don't do that, you don't, you don't have the opportunity to learn what that caregiver is doing. And that goes back to the fact that we just let people do things over and over again, and we don't do anything about it. So we become victims ourselves. Now, that, we just talked about the home environment. A lot of people are now in care facilities or with COVID, that's, that's a little more challenging because they were closed down for a while. Now we can get back in and some people are going back there. But a care facility is a little different, I think, because although it's, it becomes a home for, for our parents because that's where they're living, it's, it's a full organization where there are many different interactions going on from the person who runs the facility to how the, the structure of the building is set up. I know one of the things I'll use as an example is I went into a care facility to, I call it my secret shopping of care facilities, <laughs> just to get a better understanding of what's going on across different structures. I mean, operational and business structures and how they provide the care. And one of the questions I always asked was, what happens if there's a fire? What do you do? Do you have drills? Are the walls safe? What's there to prevent it? And they all said, oh, yes, we've got this, this, and the other thing. And it's great to have a wall that when or door, when you close it, it'll prevent a fire. What my concern would be is, what happens if my parent is on the other side where the fire is breaking out and you've closed that wall and you couldn't get them out fast enough because you don't have enough staff? Right. Those are some of the things that, that I looked at when I went into some of these facilities to understand what was happening or one elevator and one set of stairs and three floors of elderly people. Right. So those are some of the things I looked at, but it still came down to, I didn't see all the staff. So I didn't necessarily know if they were doing their job properly to take care of mom and dad. Absolutely. And that the fact that you went and visited, and I'm sure that most, many kids, hopefully they, they live where their parents are in a, in a care facility and, and have an opportunity to visit. You can ch see changes in behavior of your parents. Those changes can be because of the care that they're being given. It can be because of what's going on with them. So the external factors are impacting their own personality yeah. as a result. And so I have a very good friend who they had to put her mom into a, a health care, a home health or a health care facility. Care facility. And they would go visit on a regular basis once the doors opened up again. And they found out that because she had dementia, she had forgotten she was married. So she actually had three boyfriends. Um, <laughs> and- well, it makes life a lot well, more interesting but, for, but for her. They, for because us, they saw still. that and they were aware of how they wanted their mom treated, they actually talked to everybody that interacted with their mom to find out if this was okay. You know, is there anything else should be done? What are you guys doing about it? And they learned a lot about how to deal with that. But if they hadn't had that situation awareness and, and noticed those things, because at the very beginning, it was very subtle that it was going on. Or to know that she's being physically, she's not being physically abused right. by and any that was a, these, that was a these big, individuals. That was too. a big part of what they were asking as well. I do like the fact that you went in and you asked the facility, so what do you do in case there's a fire? I like facilities like that to have a program like mine that teaches situation awareness so that they don't just have a plan that's written on the wall because plans, according to General Eisenhower, are useless unless you do continuous planning. Yep, that's muscle why, memory, right? That's why we have the, our program the way we have it because there are a lot of threats that are potentially in those facilities, not just a fire, that they need to be prepared to deal with based, and, and have the ability to assess what's going on. And then like you talked about, some of them maybe only have one way out or they have you know just one elevator yeah, they have a plan, but if they haven't actually thought through what they're going to do and practiced it, 
will they actually be able to execute it? And the other thing to think about is those people probably haven't been put into a stressful situation. So if they haven't been planning on what to do, even though they have a plan, that's always a concern of mine in, in businesses, schools, and churches that plans, you have to have it. But if you don't do continuous planning, you will be panicked if there's something bad that's happening. As a kid, I remember in the neighborhood and the community that I grew up in, in Long Island, that the entire community, I think it was at least twice a year, would do the fire alarm thing. And everybody would knew that there was a particular day and time that a community-wide fire alarm would happen. And we were all supposed to practice, how do you get out of a house? Where do you meet your parents? If you're with a sibling, you know, how do you make sure that they're safe and you're safe? And in fact, we had, my parents had a uh, metal fire ladder that went out the window because I was on a second story, my sister on a second story, and that always sat under our bed. And we always knew where it was and we pulled it out and I never actually practiced going out the window, <laughs> but I knew, how to, I knew how to use it. And when I went to college, my parents insisted that that fire ladder came to school with me. So I think I was the only student at the school that actually had their own fire ladder to escape if need be. So they were, they were aware, aware of that. And uh, so I want to take this a little bit now to the next level. We've talked about home. We talked a little bit about care facilities and AIDS, but doctors, there's a whole nother story. I mean, it's one thing if you have an aide that's working with your parent day in and day out or somebody who's coming into the home, but a doctor only has so much time to be with you based on insurance and their ability to run their own business. And it's very difficult to get a sense of the true care, I think, that a doctor can have. And it's not just a doctor, it's a staff. And I've got a story there too, but I'll let you go forward on this one first. Well, and, and that's again, where you have to go with your parents, just like if you take your kids somewhere and pay attention to what the doctor's saying. And because most people don't have situation awareness today, if you develop the 10 critical skills where you do active listening, because a lot of people, most people today don't know how to actively listen, to come up with the questions that you want to ask, to learn about and to be perceptive, to see if this person is kind when they're talking to you, are they kind when they're talking to your parent? All of that is what gives you that either good feeling or that gut feeling. But when you develop the ability to do that, that helps you then make those judgments that you have to make because they are judgments, right? Right. Today, we can go on social media and we can go a lot of places to find out reviews of doctors and those types of things. I have, we have a great general uh, practitioner that is our doctor. He's former army. He doesn't necessarily, when I go visit him, he doesn't necessarily follow those time rules. We'll talk for a long time because we have so much in common, but I trust him. And that's why I go there uh, because I get that personal feeling that he cares, right? With many physicians and nurses, you may not get that, but that's what I look for. I look for empathy. I look for caring because if that's the case, they're they're going to make decisions that are in my best interest because they care and not just because that's what somebody told them to tell because of a specific drug or the healthcare system says that you have to do this. I'm very big on critical thinking, asking questions, Mm -hmm. and then being in a position to make a decision on my own. And as parents, when as kids, when we take our parents, because I take my mom all the time, that's what I'm doing. And I'm looking at and paying attention to how the doctor and the nurse interact with my mom. Are they actually listening to my mom? My mom was a nurse for a very, very long time. So she self-diagnoses herself. And most of the time she's right. Right. But every now and then she'll think something is wrong and she'll tell it to, to the doctor and he'll politely say, 
I don't think so. I think it's this. What do you think, you know, based on your experience? So he brings her into the conversation. Absolutely. And that's the way, which is great. that's the way that I think a doctor should do it because right. it's just like teaching your kids. If it's all you do is lecture your kids and you don't empower them to think for themselves and to learn for themselves, you're doing them a disservice. And I would argue that's been going on for a very long time. Sure. But the goal is for them to figure out what they're capable of doing for them to learn how they need to do things, not how I tell them to do things. I've got five kids, right? All five kids are different. I've had to teach all five kids things differently because of the way they learn, because of what excites them, what they like to do. And that's the way it should be. It shouldn't be that it's one size fits all. And it very could well be you've got, if both you're dealing with both parents, one parent is one way with the doctor and the other other parent is a different way with a doctor, or maybe they see different doctors. So we're we're talking about situational awareness for ourselves as the caregiver or overseer. Is it possible to actually help our parents develop situational awareness better, even if they may have some cognitive challenges going on? It depends on their level of cognitive disabilities, um, but situational awareness is a contagious behavior. I teach okay. parents how to teach it to their kids. Using that same example I just said, you don't sit your kids down and lecture them what to do about sexual harassment or sexting or any of those types of things. You as a parent demonstrate and practice what you preach. So when my kids were young, we'd go to restaurants and I'd sit so my back wasn't to the door. And many, many times my one of my kids was going to sit where I was going to sit. And I say, sorry, sweetheart, you can't sit there. I have to sit there. And she'd go, why do you have to sit here, daddy? Well, I can't have my back to the door because I need to be able to see the exit in case anything bad happens. I'm going to take care of you and tell you what to do. I did that over and over and over again. So when she was 14, we went to a restaurant with family friends and her friend was going to sit in the seat I was supposed to sit in. And my daughter said to her friend, I'm sorry, you can't sit there. My dad has to sit there. And her friend said, (laughs) why does your dad have to sit here? Well, my dad has to sit here because he can't have his back to the door. He's got to be able to see the exits and he's going to have a plan in case anything happens and he'll tell us what to do. I never set any of my kids down, but they watched me do this over and over again. And I had those learning opportunities. And it's the same thing in the house, right? The defending of the house. If there's a fire, if there's somebody that tries to break in, I practice a process every single day. My kids watch that. So you you use the example of the fire drill that you had, right? So right. you knew that ladder was there. You guys actually drilled it a couple of times. That's a perfect example about how people are not prepared today because I've yet to go into a, to a home where I do a program and people have any kind of plan. Interesting, because you would think in the home there would be, we'd be more prepared. It's, it's sort of like the idea, I guess, in your situation, it's when there's a fire in the barn, the horse runs to the barn where the fire is, as opposed to running out of the fire and not to equate us with horses and, and animals. But there is that instinct to want to go to a place that we think is safe, even though it's a dangerous environment yep. to be in. So one, I wanted to, to circle back to the doctor's One situation where we were in with my parents is that there was, well, just about any doctor has a long wait, but it's how long that wait is and what the anger and anxiety of the patients waiting there is, is even more important. And when we finally got back to the procedure room or the doctor's office where dad was going to be taken care of, an aide or a nurse came in to try and draw blood and she dropped the blood drawing needle on the floor. And was ready to pick it up and use it without gloves, by the way. This, now, this is pre-COVID. Of course, my, my lead aide was, was with me out in the hallway or actually in the waiting room. And she heard the commotion in the back and she made it. She quickly said, oh, 
can I use your restroom and ran back to make sure everything was okay. So her situational awareness was also auditory and listening to what was going on from my voice. And I am thankful for that. Not that I couldn't handle myself because I certainly could. That doctor's dad would say was SOL when I was there. (laughs) But I, the first question I asked was, are you going to use that? And she said, well, it's covered. And I said, I don't care whether it's covered or not. You're not using that on my dad. Right. It was, uh, it was not a pleasant exit from, <laughs> from the facility, shall I say. And we quickly changed professionals. But that, I think that's a, a prime example that people should be aware of is just even knowing what's happening in a waiting room, right? You're not just sitting there reading magazines and hoping that you'll get your next turn. It's, it's the attitude of everybody else in the same room. Well, and exactly. So you can probably guess when I'm in a waiting room for a doctor or I'm any, anywhere, I'm not one of those people that is focused on my phone. I'm paying attention. I mean, I'm doing what I need to do, but I'm constantly, I have a process. Or the TV that they have in the corner. Well, I'm, I'm constantly scanning and I'm learning the behaviors of everybody that's around there. So what you just talked about, that is another great way to, to get a feel for the culture and the attitude of everybody that's in the facility. It's by paying attention to those types of things. And then if you do have to wait a long time, you know, being there with your parent, being able to calm them down, keep them so that they don't get out of control. They don't get frustrated. They don't get anxious because anytime that happens and then- Their blood pressure goes up exactly, and then they have a bad right? exam. So right. I teach tactical breathing in our programs. Just did it four weeks ago to a woman who has to have surgery on her colon and it got canceled twice because every time she'd go in, she'd get so scared, her blood pressure would go right through the roof. The box breathing method or something yes. similar? It's a done that in the group too, which is great. Yep. Um, and I use that all the time. I use it driving. I use it with my wife. I use it with my puppy. I use it with my kids. So it's a constant thing that I'm always doing because when you do tactical breathing, it gives you the ability to take a little bit of time to take the emotion out of the conversation, but it also clears your mind, gives you the ability to think. And it lowers your heart rate. It lowers your blood pressure. So, Or just the opposite when you need to get more energy going. It's like, it's like quick breaths that, that get more air into your lungs to try and how do you deal with the fight or flight type of scenario, but uh, the flight with, with focus, right? Well, and the goal is when you learn situation awareness and you have an escalated level of response because you trust that gut feeling, yep. whatever it is, then you start doing that tactical breathing. So you don't get to that point where your breathing is so bad or your heartbeat is so high because you've prepared yourself to get there. You don't go from 60 to 145. You go from 60 to 110 to maybe 120, and then it stays there and that you negate oftentimes that fight or flight. I've been in so many different emergencies, flying airplanes and flying in the early parts of the first Iraq war, where our practice and our preparation and and thought process is what kept us from doing that fight or flight so that we could do our job. But that's a combination of situational awareness, an escalated process of preparedness, and then that muscle memory that's in the lizard brain so that when that bad thing happens, you've already thought about what you're going to do. Now you're ready to do it. And that's where that continuous planning comes in. We talked a little bit about what happens in a home environment, understanding the environment. It's not always safe. Who comes in, what their behaviors are, how they react, how they interact to your parents and even yourself in facilities, a little bit more about the structure of the facility, also the variety of different providers or service people in in an organization and how that works, just even how the, the facility looks, which I think is a natural thing to do. We, we tend to feast with our eyes first because most people are very visual. What to do with doctors? You're not just looking at the doctor and the staff, but you're actually looking at the environment and the people and how they're acting around you. 
Are there any sort of other last minute tips? And you had also mentioned like the 10 tactical t- tips or the 10 critical skills, 10 critical skills. Can you run through those really quickly or just give us a quick list? It starts with being self-aware. Okay. Most people today aren't. And there's actually three parts of that. Knowing what's going on around you. That's kind of what we've been talking about. Right. The second part is knowing what you're capable of doing because in all, all of the conversations and all of the learning that we do at the Prodis Group, we will not tell you, Nancy, what you should do in a situation. We're going to help Nancy figure out how she can best using her ability. And then the third one is that your words and your actions will have an impact. Somebody starts yelling at you and you start yelling at them. Well, the chances of that being a successful conclusion to that conversation are gone. But if you learn how to de-escalate a situation by not saying things that are going to be inflammatory, you have a much better chance of getting the outcome that you want, right? So first one, being self-aware. No, those those are all the first one. There's three parts of being self-aware. All right. You have to know how to actively listen. You have to know how to think critically. You have to understand what learning agility is, learning from mistakes. You have to know how to think critically. You have to be decisive. You have to be able to make that decision. You have to know how to communicate. And then you have to have empathy and you have to have humility. So those are the 10 critical skills that you need to have. That's fabulous. I think the last one really brings it home because without the empathy and humility, the rest of it's going to fall to fall apart. You can't go in there like a bull in a china shop and and just force this on somebody or a situation. You have to be able to be a little. Uh, I, I call it amoeba like, <laughs> where you can you can mold and and adjust to the situation because it takes you know more than one person to have a situation, right? Absolutely. And with humility, you have to be able to walk away. You have to be able to understand that you aren't going to win a conversation. Conversations with my dad during his last years with his dementia, I'd get the same question every five or 10 minutes. And that's okay. And if I didn't have humility and empathy, and I just allowed emotion to rule everything, um, and I'm not going to lie, there were times where it would get on my nerves and I would have to take a step back, step back, do some, a little bit of tactical breathing, <laughs> and then answer my dad and continue to go on, right? But that's how it works. And, but if you don't have love, empathy, and humility, you can't do that. Well, Brian, this has been a fabulous discussion for those of us who are listening. We will make sure that there are show notes in this particular episode, how to reach Brian if you need to do so. Any other additional points that Brian will give us will be there in the show notes as well. And thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you. And I'm so thankful that you could join us here today. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Nancy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.